This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 5th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. How did the value of liberty, as spelled out in the Declaration of Independence and given substance by the Constitution, come to be replaced by the value of democracy, where majority rule wins every time? Tim Sandifer's new Cato Institute book, The Conscience of the Constitution, explores that all-too-important division. He spoke at the Cato Institute last month. On March 26, 1860, Frederick Douglass gave the most important speech of his life. It's not among his most famous. In fact, most biographers kind of skim over it in a few sentences. But it was the turning point in his career, and it was an important transition in the history of the American Constitution. The speech was entitled, The Constitution of the United States. Is it pro-slavery or anti-slavery? And in answering that question, anti-slavery, Douglass was signaling a new phase in the abolitionist movement. Previously, abolitionists led by William Lloyd Garrison had denounced the Constitution as a pact with hell and burned it at July 4th meetings because they considered it an essentially pro-slavery document. Garrison essentially agreed with the slave owners of the South that the Constitution protected slavery as a property right and therefore he damned it as evil and insisted that the North should secede from the Union. He printed the motto, No Union with Slaveholders, on the masthead of his newspaper, The Liberator. At first, Douglas was attracted to this view. After escaping slavery, he spoke at his first anti-slavery meeting at Garrison's invitation, and it was Garrison who helped persuade him to write his famous autobiography. But by 1860, Douglas and others were having doubts about Garrison's anti-constitutionalism. A group of legal scholars led by people like Lysander Spooner, Samuel Chase, William Jay, Charles Sumner, Joel Tiffany, and especially former President John Quincy Adams, had formulated an interpretation of the Constitution based on the classical liberal principles of the Declaration of Independence. In their view, the Constitution made at most temporary accommodations for slavery, placing it in what Lincoln would call the course of ultimate extinction. Some of these authors went even further, arguing that the Constitution was incompatible with slavery so that slavery was already unconstitutional. It was after reading these writers that Douglas became persuaded that the Constitution did not protect slavery. Instead, as he put it in a later speech, interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. And the intellectual godfather of these anti-slavery constitutionalists was John Quincy Adams, who argued that the Constitution must be interpreted in the light of the Declaration. The Declaration, he said, was essentially a constitution of the United States. It constituted the people of the United States as a single people, the one people who had dissolved the political bands that connected them with Great Britain. And the Declaration thereby created the American nation, but not on the basis of accident, historical circumstance, or ethnicity, but on the basis of certain principles. The principles articulated in the Declaration that all men are created equal, endowed with certain rights that no just government may deprive them of. Independence was declared, wrote Adams, in one of the most popular pamphlets of the 1830s. The colonists were proclaimed to be one people renouncing all allegiance to the British crown. Thenceforth, their charter was the Declaration of Independence. Their rights, the natural rights of mankind. Their government, founded upon the self-evident truths proclaimed in the Declaration, the Constitution was the complement to the Declaration of Independence, founded upon the same principles, carrying them into practical execution, and forming with it one entire system of government, end quote. 
Unfortunately, Adams noted some lawyers and politicians under the influence of the English writer William Blackstone failed to understand the radicalism of this new idea of government power. And in fact, Blackstone is often cited today as a legal authority for interpreting the Constitution by people who ignore what contempt many of the founders had for some of Blackstone's views. Right. Jefferson, for example, said that Blackstone was perverting the rising generation of legal scholars. James Wilson denounced Blackstone. In 1803, St. George Tucker published an entire fifth volume to his edition of Blackstone, devoted entirely to disproving all the things Blackstone said about government sovereignty. Blackstone believed that government is essentially inherently sovereign, so that every government contains within it, quote, supreme, irresistible, absolute power, which can, quote, do everything that is not naturally impossible, end quote. While government can grant certain privileges to people, like freedom of speech, those privileges can be revoked whenever the government considers it necessary to do so, in Blackstone's view. This was also the vision shared by the pro-slavery intellectuals. Basing their view on Blackstone's concept of absolute sovereignty, they argued that the states were sovereign, not the federal government, and that states had supreme, irresistible, absolute power. They could choose whether to grant rights to people or not. As John C. Calhoun, the most famous of the pro-slavery thinkers, put it, quote, it is a great and dangerous error to suppose that all people are naturally entitled to liberty. It is a reward to be earned, not a blessing to be gratuitously lavished on all alike, a reward reserved for the intelligent, the patriotic, the virtuous, and the deserving, and not a boon to be bestowed on people too ignorant, degraded, and vicious to be capable either of appreciating or of enjoying it, end quote. Now, this states' rights theory was obviously contrary to the Declaration, which presumes that all people are basically free and that they then create a government which is subservient to their rights. The Declaration, wrote Adams, quote, proclaims the natural rights of man and the constituent power of the people to be the only sources of legitimate power. State sovereignty is a mere argument of power without regard to right a mere reproduction of the omnipotence of the British Parliament in another form, and therefore not only inconsistent with, but directly in opposition to the principles of the Declaration of Independence, end quote. The idea that government was sovereign and that rights are just permissions that the government gives to people was, he said, vanquished by the Declaration. If the nation was sovereign and that sovereignty was limited by the principles of the Declaration, then not only could states have no legitimate authority to secede from the Union, but they could not claim power to reduce a group of people to perpetual slavery. Adams therefore became one of the bravest voices against slavery in the Congress. Frederick Douglass learned to read by reading uh, uh, Adams' speeches. Adams mentored the rising generation of abolitionists, including Sumner, who you remember was caned on the floor of the U.S. Senate for his wonderful speech, The Barbarism of Slavery. And William Seward, who became Secretary of State and wrote the first biography of John, John Quincy Adams. And of course, Abraham Lincoln, who served in Congress the same term that John Quincy Adams died on the floor of the House of Representatives. These people built on Adams' constitutional argument an anti-slavery theory that had two basic principles. First, the nation was sovereign, not the states. And therefore, Americans were Americans first and citizens of states only secondarily. And second, state, the rights of national citizenship include the natural rights of all mankind, as well as the Constitution's enumerated rights and the rights inherited from the English common law. 
The Declaration's reference to the one people and the Constitution's reference to we the people of the United States did not exclude blacks. So all American people, black as well as white, qualified as Americans entitled to national citizenship, and no state could justly exclude black citizens or reduce blacks to slavery or otherwise violate their rights. Now the core of this theory was that the Declaration is the pole star for understanding the Constitution, that it is the conscience of the Constitution, and its principles meant that liberty, not democratic self-government, was the core value of our political system, liberty. Pro-slavery thinkers obviously rejected all of this. They held that people were primarily citizens of states and that their rights depended not on national citizenship but on state citizenship. States could choose to grant or to withhold rights from individuals to suit the needs of society. The pro-slavery constitutionalists rejected that declaration, calling it, quote, a self-evident lie. John, Quincy, or, um, John C. Calhoun said in the Senate, there is not a word of truth in it. They insisted that all men are created equal really only meant white men. This, of course, was the view of Chief Justice Taney in the Dred Scott opinion of 1857. That opinion did not surprise people like Frederick Douglass. What he objected to was that the older generation of abolitionists like Garrison agreed with it. They too believed that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document and that blacks could not be included among the we the people referred to in the Constitution. So when Douglas announced his change of opinion, he was embracing a reading of, of the Constitution that was a stark challenge to the pro-slavery legal establishment, but also to the abolitionist movement. The Garrisonian doctrine of no union with slaveholders, said Douglas, leaves the slaves and their masters to fight their own battles in their own way. This I hold to be an abandonment of the great idea with which that society started. It started to free the slave. It ends by leaving the slave to free himself, end quote. So Douglas and his allies instead advanced what we might call, copying Hayek, the Constitution of Liberty. And it was these men who would form a new Republican Party that would triumph in the Civil War. When that war ended, these men saw the opportunity to amend the Constitution to ensure that it would be forever interpreted the way that they interpreted it. Now, this was a little bit of a touchy subject for them because, in their view, no amendment was necessary. They thought their interpretation of the Constitution had been right from the beginning. And then some, like Sumner, thought that abolishing slavery was enough. Eventually, though, they realized that the, a new 14th Amendment was necessary to ensure that the Declaration's principles would be enshrined in the Constitution forever. And that amendment encompasses anti-slavery constitutionalism perfectly. First, all people are citizens of the nation primarily and only secondarily of the states. In fact, states are stripped of the last essence of sovereignty since they no longer have the authority to decide who their own citizens are. Secondly, Americans are entitled to protection for the privileges or immunities of national citizenship, which include their natural rights, their constitutional rights, and their common law rights. Nor may any state deprive them of liberty without due process of law or of equal treatment. This amendment constitutionalizes anti-slavery theory, a fundamentally classical liberal, or as we would call it today, libertarian political philosophy. It prioritizes freedom over democracy as the basic constitutional value, and it promises federal protection against state abuses. Now, I want to emphasize this point, especially given the recent article in the New York Times profiling Senator Rand Paul. 
Libertarians have a better claim to the legacy of the anti-slavery movement than either conservatives or liberals today. The principles of the anti-slavery constitutionalists rooted in the Declaration of Independence, which triumphed in the ratification of the 14th Amendment, were libertarian principles. Unfortunately, that amendment was soon undermined. And as the 20th century dawned, a new generation of political philosophers abandoned the idea of the Declaration and the thinking of the abolitionists and returned to the obsolete states' rights model that held that states could do anything they were not expressly barred from doing and that individual rights are privileges that the government may grant or withhold the, to suit the needs of society. In 1903, the University of Chicago political science professor Charles Miriam, the first political science professor at Chicago, wrote that, quote, from the standpoint of modern political science, the slaveholders were right in declaring that liberty can be given only to those who have the political capacity to use it, end quote. The profession of political science, he said, had, quote, abandoned the Declaration's principle that liberty is a natural right and had come to hold that freedom is created by the government as a sort of privilege. Rights, he said, quote, are considered to have their source not in nature but in law. Given their rejection of natural rights, progressive thinkers elevated democracy over liberty as the central constitutional value. The Constitution, in their view, was about enforcing the will of the people, not about preserving the blessings of liberty. Among the first targets of these modern thinkers was the legal theory that we now call substantive due process. <coughs> For centuries before the Constitution was even written, English courts had declared that when government deprives people of their freedom arbitrarily, for self-interested reasons, or just because it wants to. It has denied them what the Magna Carta called the law of the land, or as in the Constitution's phrasing, due process of law. Today, this idea of substantive due process is ridiculed and rejected by conservatives and liberals alike. It should surprise none of you, then, that I think it's correct. But I want to explain how it works. First, for the government's acts to qualify as lawful, they have to comply both with formal procedures, the rules of promulgation, as some call it, and they also must include the substantive elements like regularity, generality, and fairness. Form and substance cannot be separated here, just like they can't be separated when it comes to matter. And the effort to treat substantive due process and procedural due process differently really makes no sense. Consider three examples. First, imagine Congress were to pass a bill that required, say, ship captains to keep lists of their passengers, but the president vetoes this bill. Now, having been vetoed, it doesn't become a law, but only for procedural reasons. If the president had signed it, it would have been perfectly valid. But because it was vetoed, it's not law. So if a harbor master comes and tries to enforce it by arresting a captain for not keeping a list of passengers, well, that arrest would be unlawful. It would lack lawful authority. The harbormaster would be depriving the captain of liberty without due process of law. The same reasoning applies when the purported law fails for substantive reasons. So suppose Congress were to pass a bill and the president signs it, creating a national church for the United States. That bill would be not a law, right? Even though it complied with all the procedural steps required to make a law because it violates the First Amendment, which denies Congress power to make any such law. Since the statute could not claim the status of law, a sheriff who tried to arrest a dissenter for violating it would be depriving the dissenter of liberty without due process of law, just as in the first example. The arrest would be unlawful, not because of any procedural shortcoming, but because the sheriff lacked any duly constituted authority to deprive the dissenter of his liberty. 
Now, these examples are easy to follow because I've been using explicit constitutional limits. But they also apply when it comes to implicit constitutional limits that are part of the very idea of law itself. There are certain common sense restrictions on what government can do that are not enumerated in the Constitution, but are nevertheless binding. For example, a statute that requires and forbids the very same act. It would not satisfy the constitutional promise of due process of law. Or a law that says, this is not a law. Or a law that consists of nothing but meaningless gibberish and symbols. Would that be a law? A law that takes private property away from a person simply because the ruler wants it for himself would also be an arbitrary assertion of power and not a law. Now, wonderfully, there actually is a case like this from, of course, Florida, America's wackiest state. In 1986, a bank in Florida hired a detective agency to provide them with a guard to protect the bank. But then the guard conspired with others and robbed the bank. The bank sued the detective agency, saying that it was responsible for the employee's wrongdoing, but the court ruled that the guard's actions were, quote, a classic case of an employee acting outside the scope of his employment. We think the employee was plainly off on a frolic of his own and was in no way furthering the interests of his employer, end quote. In other words, the guard's authority as a bank guard only existed within the boundaries of the employment contract. So when he stepped beyond those limits, his acts were not valid. And this conclusion is obvious even though the contract contained no explicit provision against robbing the bank. The prohibition was implicit because the whole point of the owner hiring a guard was to protect the bank against robbery. In the same way, when the court is asked to determine whether the government has violated due process of law, it must decide whether the government has exceeded the explicit or implicit limits on its authority. This is the theory of substantive due process. If the Constitution is a kind of contract among the people, then the government is an agent, a bank guard, hired for the purpose of protecting individual rights. And inherent in this employment contract is the principle that it may not violate those rights or act in ways that only serve the ruler's self-interest. As the Federalist Papers puts it, the Constitution is the instrument by which the people delegate authority to the legislature, and when the lawmakers go beyond their bounds, courts must intervene to keep them within the limits assigned to their authority by pronouncing the government's acts illegal, unenforceable, and void. This is how the courts ensure that the people's bank guard does not fall prey to temptation and rob the bank for himself. When the government dictates to us whom we may sleep with, or what hours we may work, or what wage we may earn at our jobs, the question is whether it has a legitimate reason for doing so, whether what we are doing somehow harms others, in which case the government may stop us, or whether the government is simply taking away freedom from people who are entitled to decide for themselves. Rightly understood, the due process of law requirement bars the government from depriving us of liberty simply to engineer society as political elites desire, or simply to assert an arbitrary moral preference. Sadly, both conservatives and liberals today reject the theory of substantive due process. And the basis for their doing so is that both sides have rejected the classical liberalism of the Declaration. They no longer believe that people are fundamentally free and that government exists to protect their rights. Instead, like the progressives, both sides presume in favor of majority power and assume that rights are privileges given to the people by the government, which government can revoke when political leaders think doing so is a good idea. Not long ago, I heard a, an interview with Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. He was asked what he thought was the most important part of the Constitution. And his answer was, democracy, a word that appears nowhere in the Constitution of the United States. 
The Constitution's first line says that liberty is a blessing. It doesn't say the same thing about government or about democracy. Very often, even in this city, you see beautiful signs, beautifully made, that say, in the copy, the, the calligraphy on the Constitution that says, we the people, leaving out the most important part of that sentence, which is the people of the United States. What was important about, that, about the preamble was that it was announcing the authority of the nation as opposed to the states. But we take out of the United States in order to emphasize this fetish for democracy that we have today. Chief Justice William Rehnquist wrote that the Constitution's safeguards for individual liberty take on a generalized moral rightness or goodness simply because they have been incorporated into a constitution by the people and not because of any intrinsic worth, end quote. Robert Bork declared that in wide areas of life, majorities are entitled to rule if they wish simply because they are majorities and that any right not listed in the Constitution simply is not a right. Liberal professor Cass Sunstein writes that the private or voluntary sphere is actually itself a creation of law which government can expand or contract to suit social needs. Professor Lawrence Tribe declares that there really is no such thing as natural liberty because society creates freedom. So, quote, there is no neutral natural order of things. So freedom of contract and property is an illusion, end quote. Two years ago, Salon.com writer Matthew Iglesias defended President Obama's outrageous you-didn't-build-that statement by asserting that, quote, the real world of human practice, or the real world human practice of property rights has very little to do with the idea of legitimate ownership or rights. Instead, quote, we should define a set of property rights that on a forward-looking basis are likely to lead to human prosperity. Who is this we? The elevation of the power of the majority over the rights of the individual, the basic assumption that people are not free unless we say so, is now so commonplace that we hardly notice how extreme a proposition it really is. It is contrary to the foundations of our constitutional system. It betrays not only the principles articulated by the founders, but the constitutional rebirth that was announced in the 14th Amendment. It assumes that no person is born free, but that freedom is a gift given to each of us by the government's whim. It ignores the conscience of the Constitution. Yet it is so prevalent an assumption today that government routinely restricts the individual's right to use private property, to run a business, to ingest drugs, to possess a firearm, to support political candidates, to choose their own cars, their own schools, their own spouses, their own medical insurance, and even their own light bulbs, all in the name of democracy. In 1893, the elderly Frederick Douglass spoke out against the rising tide of mob rule in the South. After the Union had abandoned reconstruction efforts to make good the promises of the 14th Amendment. He was asked to speak on the relation between the races and the 74-year-old Douglass said, quote, There is no Negro problem. The problem is whether the American people have loyalty enough, honor enough, patriotism enough to live up to their own constitution, end quote. Today, we still have not lived up to our own constitution. We can begin only by respecting the principle that people are basically entitled to liberty unless and until they harm others, and recognizing that democracy is valid only so long as it respects individual freedom. These principles, articulated in the Declaration, are the conscience of the Constitution, and we can remain faithful to our law only by heeding that conscience. Tim Sandrefer is author of the new Cato book, The Conscience of the Constitution. You can get your copy at Cato.org.